Hello everyone and welcome to Write Up Your Algae. My name's Emily. And I'm Clara. And February is an extra special month, not just because of Clara's birthday. Happy birthday, Clara. Oh, thank you. But also because it's Black History Month. To celebrate this ever-important month, this week I'm here to give you a short history lesson and spotlight some conservationists of African descent. Dana Bivens wrote a piece for U.S. Fish and Wildlife called Conserving While Black where she overviews the current climate and barriers for black people in this field in North America. She discusses how she's not a minority, but rather a rarity. Black individuals are so underrepresented in this field and even in hobbies and tourism revolving around nature, citing census information that poses that less than 1% of national park visitors in the United States are black. To put this in context, I think it's around like 14 to 16% of, of Americans are, are black. So, you know, a very small number of national park visitors. She then makes a very important point that I feel like I should quote directly. Culturally, we as a society associate environmentalism with whiteness and privilege, and those who participate, who do not fit this mold, become a novelty and stand out. I can tell you from experience that there's no faster way to make someone feel unwelcome in a new setting than feeling as though you don't look the part. She then refers to a prominent story from a couple years ago that you might remember, in which a birder named Christian Cooper was harassed and had the police called on him for bird watching in Central Park. She drew on this and talked about her experience picking up jogging, in which she would experience people verbally assaulting her with racial slurs and remarks from their cars as they drove by, and feeling very threatened. But she persisted and now jogs with pepper spray. It's not hard to see how racism has largely discouraged Black people in North America from pursuing careers and hobbies involving conservation and the great outdoors. However, there are some people working to change this narrative and encourage people of color to enter the industry and love the environment. One being Jamaican-Canadian Demisha Dennis, founder of Brown Girl Outdoor World, an organization that aims to educate and uplift young girls of color to enter the environment that has been so discouraging of their rightful place in it. However, this group is open to all who wish to join as allies. Many of the activities hosted include different wilderness adventure skills such as climbing, fishing, and skiing. Demisha also serves her community and environment through her seat on the Advisory Committee on Fisheries and Aquatic Ecosystem Management Plan for Algonquin Provincial Park. It also serves on the Friends of Algonquin Park Board of Directors. I was like looking on their website and like the uh the most recent events that they have going on they've got like ice climbing and they've got all kinds of stuff so it's it's a it's a really cool group and they've got some some cute pictures of the group all together and i'll definitely post some on our instagram and honestly i would love to join (laughs) it looks like a lot of fun moving a little further south to a small community in belize called gales point melanti a unique and beautiful part of central america Here is one of the last Maroon Creole villages alive, founded by former enslaved Africans who had bravely escaped British plantations and formed a community where they could practice West African customs and language. Here, Jamal Galves was born, and when he was 11, he saw a boat with an engine on it for the first time, with the words Manatee Rescue written on the side. Jamal mustered up his courage and asked the crew if he could join the team of internationally renowned scientists from the Clearwater Marine Center, and just astonished with his gusto, they said yes. I don't know if you're familiar with the Clearwater Marine Center. You might know it just from pop culture. It's mm-hmm. where, um, what is it, the, the dolphin with like a prosthetic tail. There was oh, like yeah. a movie made yeah. on him. Yeah. So it's kind of known for that. But they do a lot of um, manatee management and rescue. Mm-hmm. That day, Jamal helped the researchers perform wellness checks on the Antillian manatee, an endangered species whose local population is less than 1,000. That day, Jamal helped researchers bring a manatee into the vessel, and this particular manatee was covered in scar tissue. When he learned that these engine boats that he had just seen for the first time that day could produce such, you know, intense marks. I don't know if you've seen these images of manatees that have been 
hit by boats. They're pretty they're pretty easy to find. Honestly, most manatees do have some sort of scarring on them if you look at manatees often, I suppose. But he was he was so appalled that these boats were hitting manatees and which is why largely why they are so threatened that that day Jamal made a promise and has since dedicated his life with the Clearwater Aquarium for the last two decades to conserving and rescuing this vulnerable species. But this is not without struggle and he said in a podcast interview with PBS, I have this vast amount of knowledge from learning about this species since I was 11 years old, but nobody in higher offices listened to me, paid no attention to me, or they disregarded me very quickly because one, I am black, and two, I have no degree. Jamal now has a master's degree, by the way. (laughs) Jamal has garnered the well-earned nickname, The Manatee Man, where you can find him by that handle on social media, where he has so much fantastic content about his work and has a really incredible story that I do recommend the PBS podcast episode about it, if you'd like to learn more. But I think think that's a very heartwarming story, and he was one of the people that made me want to do this episode because I've been following him for, for so long. Now, Clara, let us travel to Africa, where the history of conservation has its differences to that in North America. Africa is a massive continent with differing histories depending on the country we're talking about that I would frankly have to take a whole episode to cover or probably many more. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in this, I have to recommend a black-led podcast called Black Myths that did a whole episode talking about this that I got some of my information from. But Here are the broad strokes. Modern conservation in Africa and how it's perceived by the general North American public is very skewed by colonialism. A lot of protected land is not owned by African people and the people who do own it can greatly profit from environmental tourism that a lot of these protected environments are used for. Also, colonialism in Africa brought European values onto wildlife and a lot of these protected areas were originally protected to be used for hunting. And when I talk about bringing European values, one of the ways that you can see this is in what is thought of as a pest species or a vermin. So a lot of these species that, based on European values, you know, when these European people were coming to Africa, were largely killed off. One of these species that we're going to talk about a little bit later on is the um, African painted dog and like many other, you know, wild dog species. A lot of those were killed down incredibly low because they were thought of as a vermin species and this was a European ideology. Also, many of these parks that bring in a lot of money displaced African people who had been living among this wildlife sustainably for centuries. Furthermore, when people think about conservationists in Africa, they don't typically think of black people, which is very ironic. <laughs> they think of the Jane Goodalls, they think of the George Adamson, Diane Fossey, but a lot of these people were able to do the, you know, in many ways, incredible things that they did because they had swaths of African people working for them under terrible conditions, terrible pay, and terrible treatment often sometimes by these people. What comes to mind is Diane Fossey in particular, who had some testimonials about her spitting, yelling, and hitting her black employees. I am working in the Intrabio lab, and today we were talking about Darwin and his privilege, and how, like, even though the theory of natural selection, you know, came from Darwin, there was a lot of people working under him and a lot of people working for him. And he didn't obviously do all that work. So mm-hmm. there was a certain level of privilege associated with being such a great scientist that people know him for is because he was above and had that privilege of other people working for him. Probably, again, not the best paid conditions and living uh, conditions as well. Yes, absolutely. It, it also, that kind of just brought a thought to my mind of, I think there's a big movement happening right now in, I think, the birding community, uh, but I'm sure this is happening in other other mm-hmm. communities as well, to rename um, organisms that have been named after 
European people who, and I'm using quotation marks here, discovered them because obviously yes. there are you know, indigenous groups who used these organisms for many years. They knew of their existence. I also think of like the coelacanth. You know, some people think that scientists discovered the coelacanth, but you know, there were African people who knew the coelacanth existed because they had been fishing them for many years. The fact of the matter is that black people have allowed these heroic looking white figures to do the work that they do. And primarily it is African people upholding African conservation in Africa, which I feel should be a bit obvious. <laughs> but based on, you know, prominent pop culture figures, it doesn't really look like that. And more of these people should be in the spotlight and we should know their names, the same way that we know these white conservationist names. That brings me to Jealous Mapofu, the recipient of the Tusk Conservation Award Jealous started his journey as a casual laborer in Zimbabwe National Park when he became frustrated. He wanted to do more. So he joined Painted Dog Conservation to track and monitor dog packs within the Huang National Park. Jealous was a force in evolving the conservation of this species. He monitors 3,000 square kilometers of territory, which he drives out and often stays for days at a time to monitor the packs, particularly if he knows there's an injured dog and he knows each of them as an individual and has a deep understanding of their behavior from his extensive time spent with them. Jealous is a massive role model in his community, and he has been elected as head man in his village of Lapote. African painted dogs are a fascinating species, and they live in cooperative packs and are restricted to a few isolated populations in eastern and southern Africa. The main threats to its survival are from persecution, snares, and disease. And this is a direct quote from Jealous. If we don't do something now, these beautiful animals will be lost to humankind. I want to be a part of those offering tangible solutions and actions to keep the future of painted dogs secure. The PDC, or the Painted Dog Conservation, is also a very interesting or organization and one of the ways that they make money, I thought this was pretty cute because I just found it on their website, is through selling art that they make from snares. And I thought that was a really interesting way yeah. of... Um, of raising funds and an interesting art form. It's kind of ironic. These are what's killing them, but there's also making them money to protect them. At yeah, the same it's time. true. It's, it's cute. I like that. To finish off this episode, I wanted to talk about the group that made me want to do this episode in the first place. I've been following them for years, and honestly, they need no introduction, but they are the Black Mambas. They are the world's first all female anti poaching wildlife ranger unit founded in 2013 with the purpose of protecting wildlife in the regions of Oliphant's West Nature Reserve and the buffer zone in the Greater Kruger of South Africa, which hosts the world's largest rhino population. The reserve in question was a poaching hotspot, and since their creation, they have reduced poaching by 89%. The Mambas take action against poaching by patrolling the park and its boundaries, removing snares, and gathering intelligence on the park and potential invaders primarily against game hunters and rhino poachers. This actually kind of brings me to something. I had edited this semi-last minute. I had changed it from, so I had originally said bushmeat hunters instead of game hunters. However, after listening to the Black Myths episode, they had talked about why, like, they were questioning why they use bushmeat rather than game. Like, bushmeat is almost exclusively used to talk about African wildlife, whereas everywhere else on Earth, it's game. Okay. So they say it kind of, they're using a more primitive term to describe yeah. something that is only done in Africa, and that is not necessarily, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a double standard. People's reliance on the natural environment is much higher, so it's, it's a bit of a complicated topic to tell someone that they can't go out and get food themselves exactly. in their own country that they did not exploit 
Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a difficult conversation, but the Black Mambas do work to protect this particular national park against game hunters, as well as poaching. Poaching is the biggest thing. The, the rhino poaching yeah. is their, their biggest goal. I, I, would, I don't know. I, I'm not going to have a moral superiority and say that you shouldn't game hunt. No, no. But. It's, it's, it's okay. What I'm thinking about while you're, while you're talking about mm-hmm. this is, and one of our classes we're talking about, like, Inuit people in the north being able to hunt polar bear versus, mm-hmm. like, people from the south coming to hunt polar bear. Like, there's restrictions yeah. on that because they're doing it for subsistence, where people from the south are not doing it for mm-hmm. subsistence, and they're doing it for other more... Mal- I, w- I won't say malicious reasons, but they're probably not going to use They don't them. need to. Yeah, they don't, <laughs> they don't need to be doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that that's comparable, but, you know, and and I guess I don't know for sure if this is true, but I'm assuming a lot of these African countries don't have the same laws that Canada has regarding preserving traditional ways of life. Okay. Not saying Canada has a lot of work to do there. However, they do have some things in place that allow, you know, indigenous people to continue their traditional ways of life. Whereas in Africa, you know, obviously we have the black mambas who are working against game hunting. This is also within a protected habitat. So it's a little bit different. It's like you're not allowed to hunt in a national park. It's that's, that's exactly it. The black mambas are an unarmed anti-poaching group, which is unusual due to the dangers of the job. However, they do carry pepper spray and participate in intense training to avoid both the dangerous wildlife and the people they may come across. Alongside their patrols, the Black Mambas run the Bush Babies Environmental Education Program, which offers local school children weekly lessons about wildlife and conservation. It's all part of their plan to make poaching a thing of the past through education, inspiration, and food security, which I guess food security kind of goes hand in hand with the yeah. counteracting the need for game hunting. Yeah, so that's that's good because I was wondering kind of like if you're reducing one issue, you're also bringing up that yeah. other food insecurity, which is like obviously a huge issue globally so mm-hmm. it's it's interesting that they're being able to educate and I like I like the education aspect of it I think it's like that's a big part of it I think it's a, such an important thing in like being able to educate people like the younger you can educate people the mm-hmm. better it is because they can grow up with that mindset so I like that that's that's really cool yeah. Sergeant QT Malongo and Sergeant Nekateko Mazimba were interviewed by National Geographic and were asked what makes the Black Mambas important. And Nekateko said, it is important to protect South Africa's wildlife because it benefits our rural economy. Our safari tourism industry creates jobs. Even more importantly, we need to protect nature because nature protects us. Cutie replied, those of us who are mothers do not want our kids to grow up in a world without wild animals. We don't want children to think wildlife is only something you see on TV and not in real life. This brings me to another incredibly important part of the Black Mambas organization, and that is the public outreach and youth environmental stewardship. Bush Babies teaches rural school children about conservation and the environment. They provide these children with knowledge and positive female role models to look up to and push these youth to conserve the natural world. And I just love them. I think they're so cool. They're such badasses. That's that's, (laughs) made me really interested in getting more into what that, like, the Black Mamba, like, that Mm -hmm. sounds like such a super cool organization. Um, Being able to protect wildlife, but also at the same time being able to have that outreach aspect. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting that it's non-aggressive as well. Yeah. Like, that's a really cool aspect of it because you hear of, like, sometimes of, like, rangers in national parks in different national parks located throughout the African continent 
they're targeted by poachers and they're mm-hmm. targeted. So it's very interesting that these women especially are able to go yes. out unarmed and do their duties but bring so much positivity mm-hmm. along with it. I, I might not be remembering this entirely correctly, but I definitely recommend reading the National Geographic article done about them. Uh, I think one of them said that they have a the benefit to being an all-female team, because a big part of their job is also like gathering internal intelligence, you know, like getting leads on if there's going to be poachers yeah. and stuff. And they said, I think it was that women are better at that part of their job because they know how to keep their mouths shut. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> Anyways, Clara, let's head into the trivia portion of the episode. So, what four species are the highest priority for the black mambas? I think you can definitely get three, but the fourth you might not get. <laughs> the rhino? Yep, the rhino. Gorilla? Nope. No. Elephant? No. Yep. Okay. Rhino and elephant. Is there any big cats in there? Oh, yes. Okay. Was oh, it the water buffalo? No. Nope. Sorry. <laughs> Oh, yes, my favorite African big cat, the <laughs> no, water no, buffalo. I was trying to think about the big, like, there's like 12 big... The big five, the yeah. big five, I think you're thinking of. Yeah, it, that's what I'm thinking of. Anyways, okay, big cats. Um, it's the big cat, Clara. Lion. Yes, the lion. Okay, was, oh, and is it cheetah? Is there another big animal? No, nope. the last one is a small animal. Is it a dog? No, it's not a dog. Is it... Don't make me. It's a weird one. Okay, so this is an animal that has a really big value of the um, traditional Chinese medicine. You got it. You have it. That's the one. Oh, what are they called? Pangolins. Pangolins, yes. I think they're known as like, they're like the world's most trafficked animal or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're so cute. So they sort of have like a scale to them. They're not a reptile, but they have scales. And um, I think the scales are thought to like for fertility or something african painted dogs have a bizarre and unique communication method they communicate via laughing sneezing coughing or vomiting i bet it's vomiting it's sneezing they sneeze at each other (laughs) they sneeze wouldn't it be cool if they just vomited and then (laughs) i I was like i gotta put that in there and see if she (laughs) i think that would be so funny it's like imagine it's like they eat but uh, this is my thought process, okay? They eat something, and then they vomit it up, and so that the other the other dog can smell <laughs> that they vomited and know what's in the area. Oh, my word, Clara. Seems like such a cool form of communication. <laughs> Demisha Dennis started her love of wildlife hobbies through kayaking, canoeing, trapping, or fly fishing. Can I get two guesses? <laughs> You can get as many as you want. Well, four is the maximum, but... Um, I'll say jogging. No, I'm just kidding. Jogging is not an option. <laughs> um, let's let's go with fly fishing. It was fly fishing. She had a cute little story on her website where she said she created her first rod herself by, like, crocheting it. Oh and she did not catch anything. <laughs> <laughs> what? Really? <laughs> After a particularly bad hurricane in Belize... In 2016, Jamal Galves received a call due to a newborn manatee in a koi pond, a swimming pool, someone's yard, or a soccer field. Soccer field. Someone's backyard. So someone had a baby manatee. Apparently it still had its like umbilical cord and it was his first time finding a manatee outside of water. The manatee made it, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, manatee was okay. I was like, 
seems like a soccer field would be like a big open space that you know a manatee would just <laughs> <laughs> let's just crawl on up there. Oh, well, did that, they don't come out of the water. I was kidding. <laughs> You said a big hurricane, so I thought, oh, maybe they got trapped on this soccer field. <laughs> I thought I could trick you with a swimming pool, but no. no it was in its own backyard. That's too obvious. <laughs> hey, swimming pools can be in people's backyards, so. True. And koi ponds. Although I've never seen a koi pond in somebody's backyard. There's a bad koi pond in the insectarium in Newfoundland. You <laughs> can't... <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I've got so much to post on Instagram about this one. Do check out our Instagram at right up your algae, right up your algae podcast, right up your algae podcast on Instagram. I'm kidding. No question. There's no question mark in there. Just right up your algae podcast. I hope you all enjoyed. Happy Black History Month. And we hope this episode was right up your algae.